Boom. And welcome back to another episode of AlphaCast. I'm Mike Winner, and I'm here, of course, as always, with Dr. Bear Paul Lando. We have an amazing guest today, permaculture expert Levon Doerr is here to share his passion um, to restore, restore ecology and bring the many benefits of mushroom cultivation to mainstream awareness. Uh, Levon Dor is the owner of Fungaya Farm, a mushroom company located in the foothills of Humboldt County, California. Fungaya Farm provides mushroom spawn to home and commercial growers for food production and restoring ecology through micro-remediation. Levon strives to minimize impacts on the environment by promoting low-energy methods for growing this healthy food source. As a passionate ecologist and longtime organic farmer, Levon is certified in permaculture design and instruction, professional mushroom cultivation, and techniques of micro restoration. How's it going today, Levon? Great to have you on, man. Really uh, pumped for this show. Thanks, guys. Yeah, we've got another dry day here in Humboldt County, but uh, it's crisp and the sun's coming out. Yeah, the weather's been a trip of late. Uh, Bear, how you doing? Good, good, you guys. Hey, Levon, thanks for being with us here, buddy. So last time I saw you, how long ago was it? Maybe almost two years ago now? I think so. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you did a great workshop for us, uh, showed us how to inoculate logs for mushrooms, and uh, we've still got ours going with some reishi and others, and, and uh, we've got our permaculture guild started up here the, with some people we used to know down in Humboldt County, and yeah. uh, you know, your name comes up quite a bit because a lot of those people are up at our farm with uh, your workshop and know you from down south. So, so I'll tell you, I'm really excited to have you here today because uh, in the midst of the hysteria of the ongoing pandemic and uh, orchestrated chaos, uh, you know, to bring in the next phase of global governance, um, it's nice to talk to somebody that actually knows how to fix things. And, and of course, what you know how to fix uh, better than anything is the environment and also provide uh, good nutrition and medicine at the same time. So uh, your message is timely and it, it'll be a great break from outer world uh, panic and, and, and basically bull crap and uh, talk about, you know, what's real. So uh, good to have you on here. Thanks. Thanks, Bear. Yeah. And Levon, maybe uh, if you could, just for our audience, give us a little insight into how you got into this, where you come from, and um, really kind of what, how, you know, the genesis of Fungaya Farms and kind of what your mission is to date now. Yeah, thanks. So we actually started our farm in 2011 um, uh, here in Humboldt County, just outside Eureka, California. Uh, my interest in mycology sort of developed uh, in kind of conjunction with permaculture and organic farming, seeing, you know, how I could be more involved in my community in restoration and what we, what we needed, you know, around our specific like ecology and our watershed. But that really started uh, early on for me developing skills, permaculture specifically in how we could restore the land, how we could address some of the issues, how we could live more gently and more ecologically and regenerative, you know, as a, as a human. And that, that also led me to some uh, Bioneers conferences where I saw Paul Stamets, who was developing uh, my, his book, Mycelium Running, and discussing microremediation and the, the ability of fungi to break down contaminants and pollution uh, and different chemicals in our environment. 
And I was, I was just uh, amazed at the, at the not only simplicity, but the availability of that technology to the layman, somebody um, that, that didn't have an engineering degree, didn't have a hazardous waste license, didn't have uh, you know, a, a master's or a PhD in, in these technologies that I could utilize these fungal allies to actually uh, go out and heal landscapes in my community. And, and so I then, you know, obviously did more research, uh, started, uh, you know, took some of his courses, his workshops, read a lot of other books, looked at different sites that this had been successful on, and then started doing more experimentation. And then eventually, once we launched our business, was able to do a couple of projects up here in Humboldt County. Wow. And um, maybe give us a little uh, insight into some of what those projects are, because they're pretty cool. Yeah, thanks. So the first one, we, we just had started our business. Uh, we didn't even have all of our facilities finished, but as we all know, these, these things are urgent you know, in, in our community and there's so many toxic sites and brownfield uh, sites from industry, from you know, the, the, the capitalistic machine that just pollutes and moves on. Um, and one of these, uh, uh, one of these uh, great mergers that happened was out in northeast corner of Humboldt County in Orleans, California, where uh, the Mid-Clamp Watershed Council had recently uh, taken over the, this building downtown, right next to the post office, right next to the fire department, and they had a backup generator and a fuel storage outside. Well, the fuel tank had been leaking and uh, they'd had issues with the generator for years and years, and a large amount of fuel, an unknown amount of fuel, had, had leaked into the ground just 50, 60 yards from the Klamath River. Uh, this was also on tribal, uh, historical uh, tribal lands, so there was issues with removing the soil. So that was an interesting merger too. So we had a great community environmental group. We had uh, the tribes working together, the Humboldt County working with uh, providing some grants and funding. Um, and this really interesting dynamic where to remove the soil because of the archaeological significance they couldn't actually haul the soil away without sifting all of it and looking through all of it for archaeological findings um, which we did which we which were there when when we had to do the excavation so doing this on-site healing and actually introducing the the the, the oyster mycelium to this contaminated soil to to molecularly disassemble the hydrocarbons in situ, that we could do this right on site, um, allowed for amazing healing to happen, not just in the community, but also for, for the earth and, and all the organisms reliant on that landscape there. Yeah, that's incredible. So, <laughs> so it's uh, kind of legendary now that uh, Chernobyl and other places have used mycelia to clean up uh, radiation contamination. So if you take your project and extrapolate that, um, what would it take to expand what you guys did to clean up, uh, you know, larger regions? Yeah, so some of the challenges, of course, you know, there's, there's a few patents out on this technology. That's, you know, one of the uh, uh, kind of blockages of, of this going more, you know, more large scale and also 
Um, but like I mentioned, it's, it's very easy for people to do this on a small scale. Um, we helped another landowner who had spilt some oil on her property and it was extremely cost prohibitive for her to haul that uh, oil, motor oil saturated soil all the way to a hazardous waste site, you know, in Santa Rosa or something. And she was working with some engineers and she was looking to come into compliance with her property. And, um, you know, so we did, I, I, I helped and assisted her doing this remediation on her, on her site there. So, you know, small scale is very feasible. Large scale is, is also doable. Um, it's working with biological elements takes things into a different mode of operation, a different time scale. Uh, we're, we, we're, we're so ready for instant gratification in our society. Um, but that being said, even, even if it takes two years or three years to use biological methods, um, I've watched local remediation projects using chemicals take seven or eight years. So we, we, we think things are going to be fast. Um, obviously, soil removal and disposal is, is a very cost-effective method of putting that hazardous waste into somebody else's landfill. Um, and, in, and in our community, that's over in a lined landfill in Redding, which is just moving it to someone else's watershed and stalling out a problem for, you know, so many hundreds of years until it's, it's polluting their, you know, rivers or what have you. So I think we need to re-examine, um, you know, uh, what, what our expectations are of how fast things can be cleaned up. And we need to look at the bigger picture of cost. Um, you know, soil removal can often be cheaper than doing um, even chemical remediation or biological remediation. Um, and so that becomes uh, the go-to default for a lot of uh, engineering and remediation companies. Hmm. Maybe not the best idea, though, since all our topsoil is disappearing. And those of us in the permaculture movement, of course, we're learning how to grow and farm and produce good topsoil at the same time rather than deplete it. So it sounds like um, everything that we're involved with is about, uh, and I know you are, about uh, establishing local farming, um, you know, so that we don't have to transport things from different areas and, and also locally act to implement solutions that you're talking about to clean up our own backyard rather than, uh, you know, counting on some big corporate entity or government to come in and do it for us. So uh, what you're doing is invaluable because, you know, your workshops and, and your website and everything you do is about uh, traveling, you know, to different localities and teaching people like us, you know, how to do what you know how to do. Um, wh one quick question. Um, uh, do you have any experience in dealing with glycophosphates? We haven't addressed that chemical specifically, but what's really great about, um, you know, fungal remediation is that these chemicals, basically most of the known chemicals um, in, in our environment have been tested uh, against different yeast and molds and fungi in a, a couple great books and lots of, you know, uh, research facilities and things have, have looked at the degradation of different chemicals when, um, when, you know, remediated with different molds and fungi and yeast. Um, and so the, 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 
the results are there. The field testing and the, the, the actual real life implementation is kind of where the technology is at right now is how do we have that? How do we implement that out in, in real world environments where it's hot, it's cold, it's dry, it's too wet, um, the different soil types, different uh, polluted um, you know, landscapes. Uh, you know, we're asking these organisms to maybe step out of their comfort zone and grow like oyster mycelium uh, you know, Pleurotus ostriatus, which, which grows on wood, we're asking it to now, you know, break this hydrocarbon down in, in soil. It doesn't grow in soil, you know, so creating the environment that it wants to grow in that, you know, so, um, so the, 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 the results are there, the, the technology, we know what works, but the, the world, real world application is, is really where we're learning about right now. So the theory, and the theory makes sense, but as you were saying, something like uh, the mushroom that grows on wood to get it to to go into that soil medium, maybe take some amending that with wood chips or something to foster exactly. that environment, so that you can then use that remediation. And really, it sounds like the backyard farmer can be some of the greater, you know, test subjects here, and people start experimenting with this on their own and someone like yourself helping people get into uh, growing their own mushrooms. Exactly. Exactly. As, as we know, I mean, it, it's, it's so overwhelming when you look at the amount of, you know, I looked up the California's Brownfield map, you know, for Humboldt County and there's hundreds and hundreds of dots of, you know, just hazardous waste sites all over Humboldt County. It gets overwhelming, you know, when yeah. you think about the scale of, of the damage we've done to this planet. But, you know, just like we know in our personal lives, it's, it, you, you've got to do something. It's healing psychically for us. It's healing for the earth. It's healing for the ecology, our community, our watershed. So, you know, even, even on a small scale, even if it's a couple garbage cans of, of polluted, you know, diesel saturated soil because somebody spilled something, we all have these you know, problems. We all have these impacts on our properties. We all use hydrocarbons. Um, we, 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 we spill chemicals, you know, I'm guilty of it. Uh, so having these tools are, are a great uh, resource for, for homesteaders, for community activists. Yeah. And, and in the general population in the future, hopefully, if we can use their own tools against them in terms of the capitalistic markets and find ways to create business opportunities for folks seeking that where they can create their own mushroom business where they can go i could see this visualize this being the new remediation service in even cities where you you have your local mushroom uh, remediation company come to clean up a spill in a much more holistic and even more affordable way yeah exactly and and what's what's so synergenic about what you just said too is that a lot of these medicinal mushrooms that are so powerful and such great allies for our, our health, our immune system, that they also are great uh, remediators in the environment. So for instance, you know, turkey tail, I'm not sure what, uh, which variety of fungus would be best for glycophosphate, but turkey tail is like a big hitter for a lot of like really, really uh, toxic chemicals, you know, dr old dry cleaning chemicals, um, mm. you know, all kinds of, uh, uh, you know, super cancer causing 
uh, chemicals that we've used all you know th throughout our history in in our environment and our communities and and you know oyster mycelium amazing hydrocarbon remediator so the these go hand in hand and that was kind of the impetus of setting up our our business is once you have the ability to produce the spawn for food a lot of these go hand in hand with remediation amazing that's good and that's, it that's, makes <laughs> go ahead i was just gonna say my kids love chewing on turkey tail on the trail so uh it's good it's a good thing go ahead pear and, and it's a uh, perfect sense what you're saying levon because uh you know i practice uh about terrain medicine and the principles of bioterrain medicine is you don't treat disease, you treat the body. And the body is considered an ecosystem. And uh, no different than when you are farming, you want good soil, otherwise nothing else works. And so we look at the soil, the body. And in fact, we even have uh, certain laboratory assessments and other techniques that we use for both farming, the same exact science, First, uh, uh, for both farming, soil science, and health. And so if you uh, understand that, and then, you know, what you're saying about mushrooms seem to be good for the external ecosystem, and even for us, well, yeah, it's, it's kind of a no-brainer if you really understand that biology all follows the same principles. It works the same way. And if doctors, for instance, started... Uh, understanding what good organic farmers understand, then people would be a lot healthier too. So uh, since we're talking about that, you know, you, you uh, and, and I'm, I'm more interested also in anything else you have to share about, uh, you know, its application to uh, fixing our external ecology, but uh, whenever you're ready to maybe talk about uh, what you know about uh, effects of mycelium on the body. And I know you have some tinctures. I don't know if those are herbal or, or mushroom tinctures, but anything you want to share along that line? Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Bear. What's what's so interesting, I think, which isn't real predominant in, in our society, maybe more so in, in Asia or whatever, but we, we, we really, just like plants are such incredible allies, you know, fungi are, are these amazing ecosystem restorers, these amazing healers, they, the compounds they, they, they process and that they assimilate into their fruiting bodies, into their mycelium, are such incredible healers in our own bodies. And so I think the, 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 the synergistic understanding that, that people are starting to grasp more and more is that is the as these allies that 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 these organisms are to us they're striving for ecological balance why does oyster mycelium break hydrocarbons down what an what an interesting phenomenon this this mushroom eats wood it grows on alders and oaks why why would it break these hydrocarbons down okay on a scientific level you could say it's looking for the carbohydrate it's molecularly disassembling the hydrocarbons. You end up with base salts, gases, and oh, yum, a carbohydrate, a sugar, and it eats the sugar. You could just say, oh, it's just roaming around the environment for millions and millions of years looking for sugar, just like we are. But you step back on a more uh, broader ecological um, uh, sense of, of, of symbiotic relationships, and you see that mycelium is striving for more ecological abundance and ecological balance 
And of course, there's parasitic fungus and there's fungus that attack, you know, our bodies and there's, there's fungus that attacks insects and, you know, and, and ruptures out of their heads. Uh, of course, there's like aggressive strains and things like that. But on, on, a, on a grander scale over, over millenniums, you see that what are these, what are these organisms striving for? They're, they're breaking down really, really intense bonds of cellulose and lignans, releasing nutrients into the environment for smaller organisms, for bacteria, for, for, for um, you know, soil organisms, worms, uh, bugs, and that is then creating soil, and that is then creating more uh, growth on the planet, more trees, more biomass, in a sense, for the fungus to eat more food. Um, so when I look at it on that sense, on, on the grand scale of time that, that these fungi were some of the first land colonizers, some of the largest organisms after the volcanic era to colonize the land, to build soils, to build these ecological communities, you realize, wow, that, that's something that I can also embrace and take part of and encourage whether it's on my own property or my own land or my own community or in a remediation project, that, that these organisms want that to happen just as much as I want that to happen. They're striving for more ecological abundance, just which benefits me and so many other organisms. So in some circles, there's a lot uh, that's said about uh, mushrooms having uh, a network, so to speak, like a, a mushroom internet that, uh, you know, like Mike, you were talking about before we went on, and uh, just this uh, web of consciousness and communication, and that uh, I'm convinced that herbals, especially uh, mycelium herbals with my experience in medicine, uh, convey data, they convey information, it's not just about chemistry. Um, have you dabbled in those areas at all? Just reading like all the great research that's coming out and our understanding mm -hmm. that, you know, trees are communicating with each other, mycelium's communicating with the trees, the mycelium's communicating with other mycelium, uh, this, this idea, this, this internet of exchange, some great research that just came out in the last couple of years was watching the mycelium basically do this stock market exchange with different trees. It was willing to bargain. Um, with especially mycorrhizal mycelium, where uh, it, 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 it's fused together with the roots of the trees, expanding its ability to absorb minerals and nutrients and water from much farther than the root zone. And then they start finding out that the mycelium, that once a tree is, is, has enough, uh, you know, say some mineral that it's looking for, the mycelium will, will start doing exchange with other trees and actually start bargaining and be like, oh, well, you know, will you give me some carbohydrates? I'll trade with you this much sugar, you know, this much, uh, you know, nutrients and minerals. And, and, and this, whole, this whole underground relationship that's happening is just, is just, we're just scratching the surface. Yeah. Yeah. We like to talk a lot about that on, on our podcast. And, um, you know, there's, uh, we, we know the, the heteropolysaccharides and the beta-glucans and all the things that help our body's immune system that uh, mushrooms provide. Uh, I'm, I'm convinced that the real efficacy of herbals is the information they provide. Yeah. 
And uh, again, taking the understanding that our body is a microcosm and that uh, that microcosm is dependent on microorganisms, especially just like, you know, when you're farming, it's all about the microorganisms in the soil if you want to have successful farming. And we've learned the same thing in medicine. So, uh, you know, mushrooms, I believe, are are, you know, providing good chemical constituents, but more important, they're conveying information and kind of organizing the troops in there. And, and like you said, I really like the way you put it, um, you know, just uh, seem to have this intent, uh, you know, to fix things and, and to, uh, you know, reestablish the natural order. And, you know, as far as uh, rehabilitating ecosystems, you uh, you know, three, four years is nothing in the scheme of things. You know, we've been on this new farm here going into our fourth year and just what we do with our own efforts. It's, it's amazing what you see happening if you keep at it, but it's because you're working with nature. And so you put in just a little bit of effort <clears throat> and nature gives back a thousandfold. And, uh, you know, sometimes you just can't believe, you know, from year to year how much things transform. And then, of course, we can also look at the past civilizations that have come and gone and, you know, that they're discovering, uh, you know, through archaeological digs and, and you know, vast cities and technologies. And, and uh, you know, once they, um, uh, uh, you know, stop being, um, you know, inhabited, it was just a matter of a few short years before nature overcome everything and now you don't even know they were there in the first place so yeah, yeah. nature is uh the last resort and and some of us are thankfully just starting to figure out that that's where we need to go to so yeah. um so what uh tell me a little bit uh, unless you have other things to talk about um tell me a little bit about your tinctures and the things that you're producing and yeah. are they things that you're uh growing yourself on your land yeah yeah uh, you know, as a small business, we're, you know, looking at the economics of scale, you know, and what we can do and produce to survive, you know, financially on a small scale with minimal automation and, you know, looking at our energy inputs and our, our uh, carbon footprint as a business, you know, so we've, we've explored all kinds of things from dried mushroom products to, um, you know, we sell spawn, teach classes, provide, you know, grain spawn, plug spawn for commercial and home growers, uh, cultivators. Um, uh, but one of the interesting, you know, aspects of, of medicinal mushrooms is uh, it, 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 it lends itself to a, a, a more shelf-stable product. And, you know, a lot of mushrooms are real perishable, getting them to market, um, you know, getting them into the hands of chefs and cooks and, and, and homes as fast as possible so that the nutrient value is the highest, which is, you know, why we need small mushroom producers spread out, to, you know, throughout our communities. Uh, but that being said, we live in a world of globalization where stuff gets flown in immediately and I have to compete with that price <laughs> point. Um, you know, so we, we do do some fresh mushrooms, mostly uh, oyster mushrooms, uh, but as we kind of advanced our cultivation techniques and were able to expand into other things like lion's mane and uh, turkey tails and uh, reishi, we started uh, drying more of those. And uh, luckily we had a, an ethanol producer, a Humboldt distillery in Humboldt County 
so we could get 190 proof uh, fully organic ethanol. Um, and so we decided to launch a tincture line. Uh, right now we have two and we're gonna come out with a third one, our turkey tails um, uh, in the next couple months. But we're doing a, an immune tonic with shiitake and two different um, reishi mushrooms, Gandoderma lucidum and the Gandoderma sugai. Um, <clears throat> and then we're doing a, a pure lion's mane. And it's really exciting too, to just to bring that to community and have people that with health issues that are using it and, and finding benefit from it uh, and, and provide that locally. Right now we're uh, using strictly just fruiting bodies of, of, the, of the mushrooms. So we're just harvesting the reishi uh, fruiting bodies and the, the lion's manes and shiitakes. We are coming out with, we are gonna start growing pure mycelium one of the interesting conundrums in the mycology business right now, uh, which is you know mostly being perpetuated by real large companies, is it's a lot easier to grow the mycelium on grain and then just dehydrate and powder the grain. So mostly what people have access to is myceliated brown rice or myceliated sorghum. Uh, Great medicine has all kinds of you know you know beneficial compounds in it, of course, but they're inevitably diluted by the uh, brown rice. So one of the advantages of fruiting bodies is we know that it's a hundred percent mushrooms. That being said, specifically you know uh, Stamets, Paul Stamets, and his line of of um, mushroom supplements, he's been doing a lot of great studies on what compounds are in the mycelium that are either not as predominant or not available in the fruiting bodies. And, it, and from what I've read so far, both are true a little bit in both directions. So when the, when the mycelium fruits and creates the mushroom, the fruiting body, you do have, it does uh, uh, produce some higher compounds that aren't found in the mycelium. And, but that is also true of the reverse. When the, when the, when the fungi are in this uh, vegetative reproductive phase of um, this vegetative phase of growing just pure mycelium, it produces uh, certain compounds or uh, more predominant in that vegetative phase. Uh, so what we're, what we're researching right now is how we can produce pure mycelium without the grain. At, without the grain additive. Uh, uh, yes, there's some of the grain is assimilated and turned into mycelium, but inevitably you're ending up with a large uh, amount of uh, filler of, of brown rice or sorghum. Um, and so my experience with that has been that people often find they need to take a lot higher dosage um, to get the, the real true uh, you know, strong, powerful medicinal effects of the, of the mushrooms. Yeah, that's, that's all great because I have a lot of questions about that because a lot of, you know, we, we have uh, mushrooms in, in some of our products and, you know, we have some uh, good trusted suppliers and we're going to be uh, talking to you more about that too. But um, a lot of them now, like for instance, cordyceps, which is kind of hard to get a hold of out in the wild. Uh, you know, it's, it's all this grain produced. So my first question, when I saw the, the medium and everything they were using is, okay, how potent is that? And, and I don't have a way to test that directly myself. You know, it's just a kind of trial and error sort of thing. 
So that's all valuable information. What about, um, you know, when you're doing extracts, uh, I read differing things too. Some people say the polysaccharides uh, can be damaged by alcohol and some people say do dual extraction or then other people say, no, that's not the case. So what do you think about that? Yeah, uh, the chitins in the mushroom, specifically the fruiting bodies and, and, and uh, very much so the mycelium too, actually. It's, it's, they're, they're very, very hard to break down. That's why mushrooms need to be cooked so thoroughly before we can digest them. Uh, you know, the, and the same goes true for, for taking it medicinally. And so what, 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 you know, what, we've, what the research I've seen so far that's out there is that the, there's alcohol-soluble compounds and there's water-soluble compounds. And so the mycelium, the other, the other issue with just taking the mycelium itself is that you're basically taking what would be also in the same category as water-soluble compound. It's heat. You've, you've heated the, the, the tissue of the mycelium and you've broken it down and now it's more bioavailable for you. But that being said, there's some heat slash water-soluble compounds, whether you boil the mushrooms or you, or you heat the mycelium and then powder it, which is what you're getting in a, a myceliated grain product, is, is they, they cook the grain and dehydrate it and then powder it. Um, and so you're missing some of the alcohol-soluble compounds in that process. And so... What's interesting is I, when I first started researching this uh, 10, uh, 15 years ago, I was in the herb store and I saw a gentleman uh, with, that was in this giant, you know, Harley Davidson jacket, these two, mo these two uh, uh, motorcycle Harley guys, and he was in the herb store and he was buying a, all, the, all the reishi they had there, all the dried reishi, just pounds and pounds of dried reishi. And I couldn't help myself, you know, I'm starting a mushroom business, I'm interested in medicinal mushrooms. And I asked him, you know, well, you know, well what are you going to do with that? And the, the herbalist had uh, minutes before offered him a tincture. And he said, oh, the tinctures don't work. And I, I couldn't help myself. And I said, oh, excuse me, sir, you know, it's a little intimidating, the tattoos, and he's six five, big husky guy. <laughs> and he goes, he goes, I make the tea, I have hepatitis. All my friends are dead. The doctors can't believe I'm still alive. You know, it was just, it was just a little out of character in the middle of, you know, this little hippie town in this herb store. There's this, you know, big Harley Davidson guy. And I was just like, wow, that's so interesting. I wonder why he was so against the tincture. So I, I go home. I, I get out every book I have. I, I, I read every blog I can find. Um, I end up on this, um, this Chinese doctor's website who started, um, he started testing the, the alcohol soluble compounds and the water soluble compounds that you could get out of the, the, the mushrooms, the fruiting bodies. And sure enough, when you, when, when you looked at the, the, the water soluble extracts, those are attributed to dealing with viruses and specifically the hepatitis that this gentleman had. And I was like, wow, but on the other side of the column, the alcohol-soluble uh, compounds were known to address different immune and immunological problems. And so his, this was kind of the first, um, 
this was like the first information I'd started seeing on double what you considered double what you call double extraction, which is uh, uh, you know heat or or you know boiling uh, and and also uh, you know ethanol extractions. And so what his argument was made on this on this Chinese doctor's website was. There's no reason to not be doing both just because you're trying to address a virus. Wouldn't you also want the alcohol-soluble compounds to address your immune system that also, you know, could use help in other ways that's, that's you know, be, maybe being struggling with this virus as you get these other nutrients and, like you mentioned, you know, beta-glucans and, and minerals and proteins out of the, the water extraction. So... That was a real kind of uh, door opening for me and why people had gravitated towards different extractions for years and found that they worked, um, you know, uh, water versus alcohol. Uh, and so now the, the general school thought amongst a lot of the, the holistic community is, is doing the double extraction. So does the uh, water-soluble... Um elements are they at all harmed by alcohol after the fact if you combine them do you know no, not from what i've read that's definitely an interesting question um the 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 compounds do seem very stubborn to get out of a mushroom you know like we were talking about mm -hmm. it's, it's very dense i mean we take these reishi we soak them in alcohol for months and then we squeeze the mushrooms out and then we boil the mushrooms and then we add the water and the alcohol together. So we can take yeah. that, that 190 proof and we can add, um, you know, uh, the, 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 you know, fill, we use reverse osmosis water and we, and then we boil the mushrooms and then we add them together, bringing the alcohol content, you know, down to a, to a, a, a safe level for you to just, you know, drop in your mouth or put in a, a tea. So we haven't, you know, had our specific tincture tested for what compounds are in there. We're more going off of what other people have shown. And I have a, a great, uh, one of my favorite books, The Fungal Pharmacy. Um, they have some of the most comprehensive um, analysis of different extraction methods and what, what, uh, what was what was able to be extracted from the mushroom using uh, mycelium or hot water or alcohol or all three yeah and what I, the way i learned primarily in years of clinical medicine is what works <laughs> right uh, you know i exactly. didn't have a i didn't have a chemical lab but you see people day after day you know 30 people's a day a day for decades and and uh, it's like oh yeah that works and and you just like yeah, the your friend in the health food store there, the biker, you know, he, yeah. he knew what works just from experience. And that's, that's the best way because yeah. you can get all sorts of laboratory tests and things. And on the real ground, I found that uh, it doesn't always work that way when you're dealing with real people's bodies. So this is a great segue right into uh, the, the hysteria at present, which is the coronavirus. And um, I, uh, I, I'm seeing some good evidence that chaga mushroom in particular seems to, really uh inhibit the viral replication and and nice. and uh and that sort of thing so any uh anything you can share with that um yeah we there you know mushrooms are just they're way under uh, underappreciated you know especially in our society uh uh here in in the u.s um 
you know, we, we, uh, it's so, it's so interesting to see, you know, these, these defuted health claims, you know, on the CDC's website and on social media and stuff where people are, you know, garlic won't cure the virus and, uh, you know, don't drink bleach and, you know, all these, all these different things where no one's even remotely mentioning. It's like, well, could you get a doctor to admit that, you know, um, you know, uh, a Big Mac and some French fries won't definitely won't help, you know, your, your, your virus and your immune system. So we, we, we know even in mainstream society that, you know, healthy fruits and vegetables and, and, and a good diet, you know, makes you stronger and makes you healthier, but we, we're not willing to make that leap to uh, plants and, and, and fungal medicine in the, in the mainstream and understand that, uh, you know, the, that yes, rich minerals and, and, and rich different, you know, like you said, uh, the, the, the message that these plants and, and, and fungal allies have for our bodies, what they give us, uh, have this is we've been using this for millenniums you know as as hum, as humans the i mean it's the, it really is alchemy in a way yes the well the you know when the when they defawed the ice man you know up in the arctic you know he had he had the the chunks of the polypore mushroom on him you know and people are like oh what was he using it for it's like okay we'll take your pick it's it's medicinal it's it it clots blood and it's a great fire starter, you know, it's just like, oh, well, we've known this, you know, for, you know, hundreds of thousands of years. Yeah. And something real quick on the, on the more uh, uh, microbiology tip and stuff that Bear and I cover, and this is controversial in some respects, but on the idea of pleomorphism, that there have been some amazing minds that have actually been able under dark field microscopes to see bacteria turn, turn into fungi. So that gets crazy. And that makes a lot of sense in terms of what we, what we kind of understand what a virus is, which is, and this goes down a whole other subject line, but the interaction between fungi uh, and, and bacteria and quote unquote viruses has been documented and has, it's really been kind of put under, you know, constraints of, of current scientific um, concepts, but we're starting to see that things like chaga, reishi, et cetera, obviously have this effect and there's something else going on than yeah. the mainstream science is willing to say or knows yet. And obviously we need a lot more research, but as Bear says, people know, people that are sick and have these issues and take this stuff, the chi Chinese medicine has known this for thousands of years, they yeah. see it working. So there's something there. And on the chaga tip, which I just ordered 50 pounds more chaga from um, uh, our place, uh, Mountain, what's that, Mountain Rose or whatever the place is. Yeah. You're one of those hoarders, okay. Michael. Well, <laughs> I, I just, I put it in my coffee every, um, every morning. And that, that was what, a couple of questions I was going to ask you, Levon, about as far as chaga, like what's the best methods for a person like me to get in my system? Because I right. love it. I think it's great with coffee. Do you buy it in chunks? You buy it pre-ground, whatever. What's the best way to keep it? you know, when yeah. you're buying bulk like that. But two, it seems like chaga is only found on birch in the wild. Have you been able to figure out ways to actually harp to, to actually, um, you know, grow it on a farm? Right. Um, we have not attempted to grow it ourselves. I did have a employee that was doing some research on chaga and it does seem that the, 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 
the growth that it produces on trees um, is uh, uh, is is very adaptable and will grow on a wide variety of different trees. But they were finding, or at least he was explaining to me some of the research that he was seeing was that when you mentioned the birch tree, that some of the more higher medicinal compounds are produced when it's specifically grown on birch. So that's something for people to watch out for is there's a lot of knockoff chaga that, um, that work yes. that, you know, me and my, um, my worker were kind of discussing the concern about people getting lower grades that doesn't have as much medicinal compounds. And that's true for a lot of medicinal mushrooms is know your, where you're getting them from know your source and and just because it can be grown very cheaply you know in in another country or unorganically or whatever you were talking about medicine here so not only the energetic you know body of the of the medicine you know the herbs or mushrooms that you're taking but also the the nutrient value and the chemicals that might come along with it so in your in your uh, expertise how would you say it would be for an average Joe like me, what's the, you know, to get chaga into your system? What's, what are some ways to recommend besides, you know, making your own tinctures or buying tinctures? I mean, like for instance, I grind it up and put it in coffee. I also get the pre-grind stuff. Um, as far as extracting it and for, to get the most bang for your buck. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as we discussed, I mean, your tea, you're basically doing a hot water application. So that, you know, that's great. That's totally sufficient. Um, you know, something, you know, these very dense polypore mushrooms and, 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 uh, you know, things like chaga and stuff, the, the more you can boil it, the better. So, um, just, you know, mixing it in the tea is, is probably sufficient with hot water, but, you know, especially if you have bigger, uh, chunks that you're putting into, uh, you know, a tea or, 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 or making some kind of broth or something out of, I would definitely boil it you know, for longer, for like an hour or something to get, to get your money's worth. Um, and then of so course, that, go ahead. So go ahead. You finish. Oh, and so, and then, and then as we mentioned, there, there could be some compounds that might be more alcohol soluble. I, I haven't looked at chaga specifically, but from what I've looked at with, you know, reishi and stuff that you could be, you could be missing out on a few other compounds that, that might be more alcohol soluble. Um, so obviously the finer you grind it, it's going to be amenable to extraction a lot easier. What we do, uh, we have a product I'll plug, you know, we have a chaga coffee mm -hmm. and uh, what we do is put so many grams of, uh, of uh, whole chaga chunks in with the coffee beans and then have a commercial grinder, burr grinder, and it all comes out the same, uh, you know, particle size and so that's the way we do it. So people just brew up the coffee, they get the chaga in there and some other things as well. Can, but can that's I ask a good another way to do it for coffee drinkers? A question, Bear, too, on this tip, because yeah. we take that coffee and we blend it with coconut oil because we know the lipid delivery system allows for um, more cellular. Uh, so I'm wondering mm. if doing that with the chaga, Levon, with integrating it into a lipid fat for a delivery system into your cellular matrix, if that maybe add, adds a different element of delivery. I don't know if anyone's done research on that. Yeah, I, I, haven't, I haven't read any, anything specifically on that, but from what I know, like you, like you mentioned about, you know, fat deliveries, I mean, that's so important for us to constantly have those in our diet. 
And just to go back to the, you know, chaga coffee for a minute, obviously, if you're doing a quick brew like that, the, then yes, the finer the powder, the better for sure. You know, um, yeah. that, that would, that would yeah. be the best way to get the extraction is, you know, to have it in a, in a, in a, a finer yeah. powder. And, and the liposome, the liposome delivery really does work for everything else. I don't know why it wouldn't work for the chaga. And, right. and we know that when we do blend it with fats, you know, like the, the bulletproof method, it, it uh, works for all the other herbs and, and I'm sure it works for chaga the same way. Mm, yeah. So, um, God, great, uh, great discussion. Uh, I don't know where to go. This, there's so many questions well, I have. So, well, go I have ahead. people in the chat have questions. Um, Oh, good, so, good. Well, I mean, the, the main people are really excited about starting to grow their own mushrooms mm. and starting to um, either start this as a business or um, just for their own personal uses. So maybe, Levon, we could give some tips on ways that your average you know, home gardener can get into this because it can seem quite daunting to those who um, are more of a traditional, like myself, you know, I understand how to start, start from seed, you know, anything, but mushrooms are a whole different animal. Yeah. So, um, and we know there's massive benefits to having mushrooms in your greenhouse, for example, providing more carbon dioxide to your plant. There's a symbiotic relationship there. Mm -hmm. So I'm assuming you're, we're going to talk about bags here, but, um, you know, we plugged logs in that workshop. Uh, but right. I think that would be great to give some people some practical advice on how they can get into growing their own mushrooms, cultivating their own mushrooms. And then depending on where you are, what do you recommend as far as um, types of mushrooms to grow um, in far, as far as the easiest ones to grow and the, with the most um, impactful kind of benefits to, uh, let's say, a home gardener? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, kind of like using the oyster mushroom for the microremediation uh, they're also one of the most user-friendly mushrooms to cultivate. They have what's called one of the highest BEs, biological efficiencies. So they'll produce, uh, um, you know, a weight-to-weight -weight ratio of often you'll have 10 pounds of substrate and you might get 10 plus pounds of oyster mushrooms. So, which is also why they're cheaper at the market, you know, because they're um, easier to grow. Uh, but they're super good for you, super delicious really productive, some of the fastest turnaround uh, of, of inoculation to getting your, uh, your, your food. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're not too bad dried and re rehydrated. They make great powders, um, tons of great medicinal benefits, um, full of protein, really good for cholesterol and, and all kinds of vitamins and, and that they have in them. Uh, we grow oyster mushrooms specifically by using pasteurized straw. So we get a local, um, uh, we source wheat straw and we grind it up. We put it through the leaf mulcher. You could use, a, a, people use weed whackers, lawn mowers, um, and then with, with, without the option of shredding the straw, you can also just use the straw straight up. But we do a, a, a quick one hour pasteurization in hot water. You can use steam, you can uh, boil the water. We use an on-demand hot water heater and we pasteurize the straw for one hour. And what that does, it basically just sets the, uh, the, the whatever molds and, and bacteria are on the straw. It, it just, it sets them into a dormant state. It just shocks them. It doesn't sterilize the substrate, but it sets the, uh, the other competi you know, competitors back just enough 
that when once we cool the straw and inoculate it with our grain spawn, it 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 can overwhelm the substrate fast enough. And this specifically only works with oyster mushrooms. It can overwhelm the substrate fast enough that that they're not actually able to uh, germinate and and colonize and grow any kind of molds or anything on the straw. And as long as the mycelium is is dominating that substrate, it secretes antibodies and it and literally like encapsulates any competitors and it's and it's very territorial. This is this is my substrate. You're not even going to be able to germinate or grow on this until I'm done with it. <laughs> um, and wow. and so uh, it's a great turnaround. It's a great way to produce large amounts of protein in a in a very fast um, uh, manner. It has a, a much lower carbon footprint than sterilization, which is traditionally used for sawdust production, like on um, um, uh, you know shiitake production specifically. To use that for an example, so it's much more of a, a, a lower ecological footprint. There's been lots of discussions of using oyster mushrooms in disaster areas where people need food fast, and what can we you know, what other protein can we produce in a matter of, um, you know, weeks, you know, three weeks a month uh, uh, besides growing, you know, crickets or grasshoppers mm -hmm. or something, you know, there's not enough, a lot of other proteins that we can produce that fast um, for people. Um, and so we, we, uh, we grow a lot of oyster mushrooms. That's a great introductory way. Oyster mushrooms are so for, forgiving that people can even take the stems of oyster mushrooms that they find in the wild uh, or at the store and just wrap them in wet cardboard and start growing their own spawn and pour some hot water over some straw, add some old coffee grounds. Just it's one of the funnest, user-friendly, easiest mushrooms to goof around with and, and grow at home. Amazing. This is that this is great. Um, and you guys sell spore starter packs and stuff like that, right? Yeah, yeah. So what we provide is we we use organic wheat berries and we grow the mycelium on sterilized organic wheat berries. And that way you can take like four pounds of uh, organic, you know, spawn and you can inoculate, you know, about a half a bale of straw which will grow you tens of pounds of oyster mushrooms for the next three or four months. Fantastic. So you provide uh, the uh, spores and everything in your shop? Yeah, we specifically just grow the spawn. Um, and so just the mycelium is what we're providing people. Uh, we do do- So people could go to your website and, and get everything they need basically? Yep, yep. Yeah, I just dropped the link in the chat and we'll have the link to Fungaya Farm. Uh, in the show notes as well so that people can get that. And then for our Patreon subscribers, Levon's going to be nice enough to hang out real quick. And Levon, I think for our Patreon subscribers and the co-op here, maybe we could do a little quick Rishi, quick uh, workshop and explain to people how they can grow their own Rishi and make, grow their own medicine. So that'll be on our Patreon. If you'd like to go uh, subscribe to our Patreon, uh, you can join the co-op. That's $15 a month, but you get discounts on our products and you get some other resources and stuff. But you can also just join our general Patreon support the show here for $5 and you get exclusive access to content like that. So Levon, if you could hang out for a second after the show and we could do a quick five, 10 minute workshop on growing Rishi mushroom, I think that would be really cool. Sounds good. 
Um, amazing. So yeah, Fungaya Farm. I uh, I dropped it in the chat here. dot com. Um, you can get that um, those uh, products there uh, under the shop section. Um, and they've got uh, the grain spawn, plug spawn, et cetera, tools and wax. Um, as far as um, then bags and stuff, just like what do you recommend? Just plastic bags or? Yeah, yeah, buckets and totes are one of the easiest things to use for uh, more small scale growers. Um, we, you know, we, there's, there's cost issues with the turnover and the amount of buckets. You know, we do buckets also, but yeah, plastic, um, you know, it's disposable, it's, it's, it, it creates pollution, but there's also the uh, economy, uh, you know, the economics of um, cleaning the buckets on a, on a, on a larger scale that, that we're confronted with, you know, so using buckets specifically for full production is a little bit challenging for us. So we do use some, uh, you know, um, uh, plastic tubing to, to, to stuff the straw in and grow the mushrooms out of that also. And um, so for me, for like my greenhouse, if I wanted to get going on this, what do, concerns do I have in terms of humidity, temperature, stuff like that? Yeah, so most of the, most all the mushrooms that you're going to want to grow besides the reishi uh, really are going to be more um, user uh, uh, friendly in the early spring and late fall when, you're, when your greenhouse isn't getting temperatures above 75, 80. Mm -hmm. um, so um, the, 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 you know, which is a great time to utilize the greenhouse when it's not being used that much, or you have some starts getting started in early April or May, um, you know, that's, that's a great opportunity where you have that, you know, high humidity that a greenhouse provides. You're looking for 80% humidity, 90% humidity that could also be achieved by, you know, creating another little microclimate within the greenhouse. Um, with some other uh, greenhouse plastic or some kind of sheeting or something uh, where you create another little humidity chamber um, within within a greenhouse. But often in our, uh, you know, coastal environments, uh, you know, in the Pacific Northwest, we do have pretty high humidity um, and these perfect temperatures for greenhouse or even outdoor fruiting in, in you know, March and April and October and November. Very cool. Uh, interesting. Um, and do you know as far as the humidity, um, actual levels and stuff that you're targeting in terms of numbers? Yeah, so we're looking for temperatures around, you know, most to make some generalizations, you know, again, we can get into ratio, which is more specific, but most of your edibles, shiitakes and oysters and lion's mane and namako and things like that, they're really, everything's gonna produce, you know, prefer like high humidities in the 80 to 90%. Um, the, the, and temperatures, most things are pretty, uh, you know, malleable. They'll, they'll grow slower at colder temperatures. They won't really handle uh, really hot temperatures over, you know, 75. You know, some things might be able to be okay with uh, 80 here and there, uh, during the day every once in a while. Um, and then there's the cutoff for cool, you know, for on the other end is really you need to have nighttime temperatures above, you know, 45, 50 uh, to, to, to get any kind of growth to happen. Very cool. Yeah, you see it, obviously the wild mushrooms, Exactly. You know, just they grow with spring and fall or is like the target time. And we are fortunate enough to 
where we live in the lower Pacific Northwest, what I call it here, um, on the border of California and Oregon, we live in mushroom paradise, really. Um, what are some of your favorite wild mushrooms to forage? And uh, what, do you, uh, what do you have down there in Humboldt that you like? Yeah, that really was sort of my introductory into mycology was chanterelles. You know, we, we, you know a friend of mine taught me how to find them. Uh, restaurants were buying them and I was able to um, pay my rent, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, and, and that led me to, you know, mushrooms demystified and, and reading David Aurora's book and, and learning about other mushrooms. And of course my obsession with, uh, you know, wild foods and, and plants has mostly been around what I can eat. Uh, you know, um, I've expanded that in, in my, in my you know older age to start to encompass and learn about other you know roles that mushrooms play and and things that you know aren't necessarily edible but also just you know beautiful and play a, an incredible ecological role um, in our environment uh, but yeah i i really i really you know i love black trumpets mm. craterellis you know california copetus you know um and chanterelles, obviously, you know, lion's mane, so fun to find in the wild. We do grow it, you know, here for our tinctures and to eat. Um, but it's it's such a joy. It's such a it's such a, a fun surprise to find the lion's mane. You know, they're 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 a little more sneaky, a little a little more rare, you know, than than lots of mush than lots of you know. Where uh, in your experience do you typically find a lion's mane in terms of in the forest? Yeah, primarily in uh, oak forests, uh, it loves to grow on rotten sections of live trees. So I'll I'll find you know um, witch's beard, different heresiums, you know, on on uh, hollowed out trunks, um, uh, uh, sometimes too high up to to reach, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> On on uh, on dead branches, uh, white oaks and black oaks primarily. And uh, very cool. I'm taking notes. In fact, I've got my uh, mushrooms of the Pacific Northwest guidebook here, of course, by Steve Tradell and Joe Amirati. Excellent. Great, great field guidebook. It's got amazing pictures, all color pictures. And um, I, you know, living here, I've really caught the mushroom foraging bug and. Black sure. trumpets is a favorite of mine, and uh, I, I, you know, a lot of lobsters up here, um, mm -hmm. and, but always, and of course, turkey tail, artist conks, that stuff. Um, but uh, it's a, it's, it's such a fascinating hobby, and yeah. really, and, and the kids love it. it. It makes going into the forest a lot of fun because it's like a treasure hunt, yeah. and then you're getting in touch. I think it's amazing for children getting into this hobby, and there's a lot of fear that you know, oh, you're, you know, you can uh, die. Or, or get really sick but what we found it, through my research is that's that's actually very rare you have to really be kind of stupid to yeah. um to uh succumb to that um so there's a lot of misinformation out there about foraging um Definitely. but also on the other side it's kind of interesting because i do have friends that go and they forage and they have a business out of it and it's like it, it's crazy you're going into these forests and you're getting free essentially um uh, food by foraging. And I guess there is some kind of concerns there in terms, and I know, I think in Washington, they're starting to limit ability of foraging because of over foraging mm -hmm. and also people that are educated in terms of how to forage. Mm -hmm. Maybe if you could explain 
really quick, what are the best methodologies and just general ethics of uh, foraging mushrooms? Definitely, definitely. Yeah, obviously there's a lot of us humans on this planet now and we have put a, you know, huge stress on all kinds of different wild um, foods, you know, ginsengs and, and, and golden seals and you know, Oregon grape and, you know, all kinds of things. And the, and the same is true with mushrooms and, you know, seaweeds and, uh, you know, different things. And as the environment becomes more stressed too, and we look for these heal, these healers and these allies out in nature, you know, it's good to have that awareness. Um, uh, on a, on a, on a biology standpoint, a fruiting body is called a fruiting body because it literally is the apple on the tree. It, liter it literally is, you're just picking an apple. So uh, what we see is when, when people talk, start talking about over-harvesting, there's been, there's been some pretty decent studies that have defuted the idea that you can over-harvest apples. Um, mm. or mushrooms. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, uh, as more of an ecologist, I, whenever I'm harvesting, be it nettles or acorns or chanterelles, I don't take everything from, from, from the ecosystem. There's other animals, there's other organisms, there's other insects dependent upon these foods. Um, even if it's just a banana slug, they play a super important role in the ecosystem. And so that to me is over harvesting. And so it's important to leave some berries for the bears and it's important to leave some nettles for all the other, uh, you know, insects and, and, and herbivores that also like to enjoy nettles. And the same is true with, with wild mushrooms. Um, in terms of uh, actually picking the mushrooms too, I've learned that you want to cut the fruiting body at the stalk but not rip it out. This helps the mycelium network, correct? There, there, there's some validity to that, but again, you're talking about a micro microscopic amount of mycelium that's disturbed when the, 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 the organism, the, the, the apple tree itself is massive underground and and living symbiotically with that with that you know oak tree or that spruce tree or whatever or the huckleberry um so it's kind of like you picked the apple and a a little bit of a branch came off with it um so again that's yeah. not that's not having a, a a big impact but i like to think that you know just like um seaweed releases you know uh, as you know uh, spores in the ocean and you're you know you don't want to pick all the seaweed mushrooms release spores per, my personal philosophy is is when i'm out harvesting whatever wild foods they are you know you leave you leave the big the big grandmother chanterelle to to spore into the environment you know um people have done these studies and picked the mushrooms over and over again and Yes, as soon as you see the fruiting body of most uh, varieties of, of fungi, they're already releasing spores. But you, we, we've got to. We, I think we can all admit that as the mushroom gets bigger, it's releasing more spores. The longer it stays there, it's releasing more spores. Um, people have also made the argument that uh, humans 
have become, can be part of the ecology. And as we pick the mushrooms, we do become spore dispersal uh, organisms also. That's a great point. That's the whole point of fruiting uh, bodies being uh, delectable. Exactly. So that mammals and other animals take them and, and the seeds get, you know, the birds get the seeds and drop them and then the squirrels, exactly. you know. There's That's some uh, really cool study showing of squirrels I've been watching lately and how they proliferate forests. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah, that that's a great point you make because people are part of the natural ecology and there seems to be a movement underfoot these days that you know people are evil and we're you know the problem and everything and well no not really it's just we have to learn how to act responsibly mm -hmm. just like all the other mammals in the forest and uh we can all uh coexist and be symbiotic at the same time Yes. So, uh, great points. Great. Um, uh, wow, this has been such a great talk. I really want to get you up to our place again. And uh, Deb will probably be giving you a call there. And if you're open to doing another workshop up here, because we've got a lot more people this time around now that our permaculture guild is really uh, caught on. And, yes. uh, you know, we're having regular meetings and they're growing all the time. So it's, it's, uh, it's really heartening because there's a, a great interest in all this. So, love to have you back up here. Great. Yeah, it's, it is really cool how the whole mushroom thing is really on, thanks to Stamets. And, uh, you know, are you familiar with the fantastic fungi, fungi uh, movie uh, that's coming out? Uh, we have a friend, Judy, who's in the permaculture group, who's uh, spearheaded the film up in Brookings here. And uh, I know they're doing, it's in 13 days, they're having a nationwide release celebrating it uh the fantastic fungi day they're calling it on march 26th and the movie's going to show across the country are you aware of this Levon? yeah i'll be at the showing here in uh, arcada they're doing it at the d street um arcada community center uh um i think it's uh, six o'clock um it's there it's it's up on the facebook and and on our um uh, uh on our our email um, yeah, I'll be there with my tinctures and spice mixes, and I think there's going to be a little after uh, after the movie discussion too. Um, Fantastic! I'm showing the uh, on the for the those in the watching the video here the uh, website. It's fantasticfungi.com, and uh, you can go to there and you can go to the actual um, showings, and they are everywhere from Hawaii, Washington, Florida. I mean, in every state it looks like. Yeah. Uh, so um, this is really cool. And um, I've been meaning to read the book, actually that the movie's based on, but uh, this is really exciting that, um, you know, this is really getting into the mass consciousness right now. And I think it's time. It's time that, um, you know, we woke up to the power of, uh, of what these um, amazing little guys can do for us. Definitely. And Mike, just to go back to harvesting for, for one more yeah. point, um, when you said to cut the stock off, that, that is a practice that I do with most edibles and I know what they are and I'm harvesting, you know, my black trumpets, I'm harvesting my king bolites, I'm harvesting my chanterelles. And I truly know that that's what it is. And the main reason I do that is because I don't want dirt in my bag. Not so much that I'm, uh, yeah. that I'm damaging the, the mycelium. Because like I said, we're talking about a couple threads of hyphae, you know, attached, which is really not, you know, a, a big deal. 
But just for the amateurs um, out there, uh, it is important to pull the whole mushroom out of the ground because there's some major identifying features uh, that, that are in the ground often on the stipe where it is attached to the mycelium. And so you, there, some mushrooms can be um, almost identical um, but have different characteristics of the, the base of the stem, the base of the stipe. So for identification purposes, it actually can be important for people to actually pull the whole mushroom out of the ground. Fascinating. Hey, thanks for that tip. That's uh, something I haven't heard. So I know, uh, you know, obviously taking the mushroom and putting it on paper to get the, uh, the, 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 fing yeah, the fingerprint, if you will, yes. it is a, is a, is a really good technique. And um, there's great documentation and in the resources uh, page that we're working on, for the co-op and uh, for our community, we'll have a whole mushroom section where uh, there's some great uh, books and documentation out there as far as identification, local field journals uh, and field books to um, the great work that Paul Stamets has done. And like we were mentioning with the fantastic fungi and, and I'm sure Levon, you know of a number of other resources too, you might be able to share with us for people trying to learn more about this. Yes, definitely. Well, of course, we have Mushrooms of the Redwood Coast now by um, Noah and Christian, which is the most comprehensive, um, uh, uh, you know, Southern Oregon to the Bay Area um, cool. doc documentation of, of just our bioregion. It's the first book that's come out for just the Redwood bioregion. Um, so that's a, an incredible resource to have. Uh, and like you'll like you'll notice in your in your uh, book that you showed us, Mike, of mushrooms of the Pacific Northwest, um, all those mushrooms were ripped out of the ground. If you look at the yeah. site at the base okay. of the stem, so because 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 you need that to ID. So any mycologist walking in the woods would rip the whole mushroom out of the ground. Very cool. Yeah, and it's funny. One thing that I'm really into now is no dig. As far as on my property for the for the raised beds that I do do and everything in my property now, it's it's a major trend uh, in uh, home gardening and farming, even small production farming is no dig. And that's because of the mycelium network. And we're yes. finding that the traditional way of gardening where you till the soil and rip everything up and turn, you know, turn the soil. Um, Charles Dowding, I don't know if, if you're familiar with him, he's kind of a huge no dig um, proponent out of the UK. I love his YouTube channel. It's been a, it's a really great educational channel. And he's, he's been doing these tests with no dig versus traditional mm. uh, turned over beds with um, the amendments and stuff and finding that no dig um, gets bigger yield, healthier plants, and has way less work. <laughs> so it's just like going back to nature and understanding that's like less is more many times. Um, and one other question, I just um, was planting some bare root uh, nut and fruit trees a couple years old I got from a great nursery here in Brookings and the fellow there who knows a lot uh, was saying actually to uh, you know I was asking him you know it's kind of like the debate do you prune or not prune these young trees and he was saying not to prune these because the network with the mycelium actually talks to the these branches and actually informs the tree on how to grow in the future and if you're cut if you're pruning too soon then that can infect, uh, that can a and actually um, kind of get in the way between that whole network. So really interesting how people are yeah, yeah. figuring this all out right now. Definitely, definitely. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely not a master uh, fruit tree pruner. We have some of those in our permaculture guild that are much more uh, 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 adept than I am. But um, yeah, generally speaking, you know, I'm, I'm usually letting the, the, the young fruit trees kind of establish themselves in, in, the, in the root zone and vertically, you know, above ground. And then, and then kind of deciding what shape, you know, you want it general schools of thought, you know, where, mm -hmm. where, where do you, is it a, a dwarf? Is it a semi dwarf? Is it a standard fruit tree? You know, when do you want it sort of to branch out? What's your, what's your, what's your general goal of, of, uh, you know, being able to harvest or height of the tree or, um, structure. Well, it's, it's interesting when you take uh, like a scion from like an elderberry or something, right. You just stick it in the ground. Yes. Wondering what that interaction is with the mycelium network there seems like that would make a lot of sense in terms of growth there for something like that. It's just nature is just so fascinating how that works. Yes, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of research that still needs to be done. But what's fun is just being you can do it, you guys, for those listening and watching, you can just go do this yourself. That's what's so great about it is you can be empowering yourself to get involved in your own backyard, going back to micro restoration, fixing your own property with, with these kind of things, experimenting yourself and really discovering a lot of this. And, and one thing that I, I love about the hive mind concepts of new, new you know, internet technologies, blockchain, et cetera, as we're developing infrastructure so that we can, as a global community working locally, get this information into databases and stuff so that scientists and those who are more specialists can, can take this data. And I know there are um, different agencies and different uh, local groups and stuff that are creating means to, to collect data. And so um, that's more information and more in the resources that we'd like to get out there. But um, essentially what's empowering is everybody who has some property can go out and experiment and do this themselves. Definitely, definitely. And mentioning, you know, the, the remediation and, and the impacts that we have on our environment. I mean, everything from my, the nitrates coming off my ducks to the manures coming off farms. Uh, you know, there was a study that they did at the university here of looking at this small little organic farm, and it's just a few acres, but the coliform levels um, coming off this farm were four or five times the state allowable levels of, of coliforms and bacteria. And this is like four goats, two geese, and a bunch of manure. I mean, this isn't even the mm -hmm. large scale agriculture that we have. And this wasn't even commercial fertilizers. This was, this was manures, you know? Um, and so we, we, we need to use these, these, you know, fungal allies and plants and, to our advantage, we can create things like bioswales. We can create things like catchments and wood chip mulches that can that can allow the biology to take place before we just flush these nutrients out to the ocean. Uh, yes. Once things once things reach the 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 hydrological system, you know, and specifically our rivers and our oceans, it's so much harder to deal with these pollutants. And, and these, these extreme nutrient levels that are destroying, you know, large areas of wetlands and, and oceans and rivers. Um, we have some of the most polluted rivers in all of California, um, uh, right, right, right here in Humboldt County. And, and it's specifically bacterial coliform, you know, E. coli levels 
and and it's primarily from from farms and yeah. the second source is all the septic tanks but but a lot of it's the runoff from agriculture and from uh, you know animal husbandry and um, you know mycology can help with this like mycelium will break these nutrients down and that's what we're looking at even in cities with permeable parking lots um, uh, sidewalk uh, swales with native plants and wood chips even though that these aren't specifically inoculated with uh, different you know uh, uh, fungal species they're naturally occurring in there yep. and it's just slowing the process of uh, somebody's dripping oil pan somebody's you know cigarette butt somebody you know spilling some paint in their yard it's slowing the process of this just flushing out into our into our streams and, and oh, it makes so much sense the concrete jungle you know in a, in a traditional suburbia uh where you have a spilled fuel or something it goes down your driveway into the gutter into the you know imagine if you had these swales or you had the, all those sidewalks were wood chipped there's a great guy uh, i've shared it before he's in arizona who who has introduced this into entire neighborhoods he's pretty famous now done ted talks and stuff where he does the swales and it's he's bringing back literally um uh vegetation back to the desert by doing this simple rain catchment with these swales and stuff and, and literally cutting the gutters out and and creating these new ecosystems where you have these neighborhoods that were before all barren um suburbia and now have um uh, edible plants everywhere and it's lush and it's the middle of you know the arizona desert right. where the river was dry and now the river's coming back right. permaculture we're talking about permaculture here of course so the idea of like you have a, a diesel spill in your backyard go get some wood chips you know i i so for instance in my on my uh, property that we purchased we had your traditional orchard in the front that was all grass with a couple fruit trees you know um and so what i've done is i've i've gone and i've sourced wood chips up in the mountains here from cuttings from the food for, from the forest service mm -hmm. and i've done the eight six to eight inches of mulching the wood chips across the entire you know it's about an eighth of an acre orchard and now just within four or five months you dig those wood chips back and you're seeing the grasses all well i i also did a kind of a sheet mulch concept with contractor paper mm -hmm. then i did the wood chips on top to really mm -hmm. get that grass killed and now you're already seeing the mycelium appearing right. and the worms and everything. So imagine taking that idea to the suburbs where you have wood chip, you know, organic wood chip services that come and they, they will sheet mulch or they'll mulch a, a spill of diesel fuel on your grass or something. And instead of that just sitting there and, and leaching into the, into the groundwater, you now have the mycelium networks growing you now then have um a more uh, uh, you know healthy topsoil where you can then grow fruit trees or whatever you want in there i mean these are not complicated ideas this is really simple stuff yeah um and it's super empowering because anybody can do it like i literally got all those wood chips for free it's just labor it was just right. and, and there's even you can call your local tree cutting companies and they'll come drop off wood chips because they're looking to get rid of it. Be exactly. careful there because you don't know where they're getting all these trees cuttings from and stuff. It could be non-organic and stuff, but right. with a little bit of might, a little bit of savvy, a little bit of knowledge doesn't take much to really start fixing this world. Yes, definitely. Definitely. 
Yeah, we're, so we're, we're, I'm working with a couple grad students and they're looking at setting up like a bioswale for uh, maybe that farm that that that, pro that, that, that research was looked at um, or somebody else that's a landowner that's wanting to implement this. But, you know, we're, we want to set up a, a, a live, you know, example that we can monitor and we can promote here in, you know, in, in Humboldt County and in, in Northern California and show people that, you know, we can, that they can mitigate these problems. We're seeing now that the, the water quality board is starting to really crack down and these, as these environmental concerns become more predominant in our society and as disposal costs at dumps go up and, and pollution regulations get more and more strict, people are confronted with these issues of, you know, am I going to shut down my, my dairy farm or, or is there other, you know, uh, ecological techniques that I could use to, to filter this water out before it reaches the bay. Um, you know, we have a huge, uh, uh, you know, oyster, uh, uh, fresh oyster, you know, production in our bay here, um, you know, millions and millions of dollars. And so finding these industries that are um, confronted with these environmental issues and looking for solutions is a great way for people to bridge that gap between, uh, you know, uh, industry and, and the environment. Very exciting. If you guys are looking to start a business and be an entrepreneur, hey, not a bad idea to get into this. Um, it's uh, exciting stuff. Hey, man, this has been an amazing conversation. Um, any final thoughts or words bear or leave on on this anything we missed we want to cover bear no i think we've uh i think we've covered quite a bit there's a lot of areas i'd really like to pick your brain about and uh, you know maybe we'll have you back for a second time but uh, thanks so much for this and uh yeah it's been great and so timely and i think the world events and everything that we're seeing you know unfold right before us now we're really leading people in this direction, whether they know it or not, or whether they like it or not, because uh, it really is uh, the solution for everything that, uh, you know, every problem we have right now. Yeah, thanks, Mike and Bear, for having me on. And just to reiterate what you said, Mike, you know, so many of, so much of these technologies are so accessible, you know, whether it's, you know, growing your own food or healing the landscape, that's, that's what got me so excited specifically about, you know, cultivating mushrooms and microremediation and growing your own medicine. Uh, it, it, it really is, you know, approachable for the average person to go out and, and, and make that change in their community and on their landscape and, um, and their watershed. Um, so yeah, just kind of, that's my, that's kind of my goal, you know, with, with what we provide is just making it approachable for folks that, that you, there's so much you can like do yourself, like you mentioned, Mike. And it's also a lot of fun too, getting the kids out there um, and seeing, you know, the fruits of your labor, literally, no pun intended, right. uh, and uh, growing your own medicine and all that. It's more important than ever with what we're seeing going on. So, the, you know, nature, Mother Nature, Mother Gaia, she tells us, she'll kick us in the ass every now and then and tell us what's up. And I think that's what's happening right now. It's like, wake up, time to... Time to um, Wake up and smell the roses and start uh, taking a little bit more responsibility for yourself. And it doesn't matter if you live in a high rise 
uh, or if you are on 20 acres out in the country, we can all do our part in terms of um, learning more and taking these techniques uh, to our life. You know, there are those in the city who are planting trees. Simple as that. Um, I mean, there's so many things that can be done. And um, the Great Awakening is happening, you know, and that's what's so exciting. And people like you, Levon, that are out there doing these workshops and spreading the knowledge of this stuff is, is, is very um, inspirational. So we appreciate you and thank you for coming on today. Thanks, guys. Uh, um, for those listening on the podcast, uh, you can um, join us every week. Actually, we do this as a live stream on DLive, dlive.tv forward slash Alpha Vedic. And that's at 10 in the morning Pacific Standard Time on Thursdays. Uh, it's a great platform where you can jump in. You can actually earn crypto for uh, commenting and um, you can tip us in crypto if you enjoy this content. You can also, of course, if you're watching this on YouTube, please subscribe, like, and comment. That really helps us spread this, uh, this information with the algorithm. So please subscribe to us on YouTube. It's just youtube.com forward slash alpha Vedic. That's where this uh, podcast will live uh, visually. Uh, and then, of course, you can find us where any podcasts are, iTunes, Google Podcasts, etc. So um, you can also go to alphavedic.com and see everything we're up to there. We have a new site coming out that's really uh, going to highlight everything we're doing on our farm in terms of our uh, herb, herbs we're growing and the products we're creating. And of course, as I mentioned before, oh, our, our telegram group too uh, is t.me forward slash alphavedic. That's where you can join us every day. That's the general conversation we have going with uh, the, uh, the community. So jump on to telegram t.me forward slash alpha Vedic. We have a very vibrant community. Love you guys really pushing knowledge out there and testing, um, kind of the, the boundaries of reality in that group. <laughs> um, and then last our Patreon, if you really want to support us, uh, besides, you know, going to our website and buying the products, you can go to our patreon.com forward slash alpha Vedic. And uh, we're going to jump on there right now with Levon, and he's going to give us a little information on how to grow our own reishi mushrooms. So thanks, everybody. Have a blessed, wonderful day. Get out there and grow something. Cheers. Cheers.